quite a quite a confession, is it not? That hymn, confession of our own need. I think it sets the uh, the mood, the idea, the theme of our text this morning as we return back to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter nine. We'll be looking this morning. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 3. And I, again, as I looked through this chapter, I toyed again with a lot of different ways to approach this. And one approach was, well, if I want to stay with the continuity of the story, I can just really take this whole chapter in one Sunday. And as you see, it's a very lengthy. But I thought, well, I'm not going to do justice to it. I'm not going to be happy with that. And somewhere along the line, I've got to come back and preach through this chapter anyway. So I'm just going to do it while I'm here. So we're going to be breaking in the next few weeks that we're on... Nehemiah chapter 9, breaking somewhat from the flow of the story because we're going to take a look at the actual confession of the people here in verses 5 and following over the next, I don't know how many weeks, over the next few weeks. But uh, just keep that in mind as we continue to study. It'll be something of a break from, from uh, again, the, the progression of things. You may remember as we as we got to Nehemiah chapter eight, I, I mentioned to you that chapters eight, nine, and ten are seen even of themselves as something of a break from what's been going on before. We got through the earlier chapters where the wall has been built, the work has been completed, there's been the recognition of the need to, to repopulate the city and how that's to be done, which actually that is addressed and actually the plan is not implemented and, and the repopulating of the city of Jerusalem until you get to chapter eleven. So you've got this Interlude of three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And again, I mentioned to you as we first approached this that it's such a such a break and seems to be such a difference. There are many people who would hold that this was inserted later by someone else into the works of Nehemiah and all this. But I, I, I think the burden of proof lies with them. I think it, it is, we can safely say that Nehemiah was free to, to draw from other sources and to include this in his work. And so rather than having his own account, he simply included what was already recorded by someone else. And we say that simply because Nehemiah is mentioned in these three chapters, not in the first person, I'm doing this, but in the third person, Nehemiah, uh, the governor, is mentioned. So that's that's how I, I handle this these particular chapters. Again, there are those who would disagree with me, but uh, that, that's fine as well. And our focus here in in these chapters, if you remember, we've been away for a week or so here, but is focused on this seventh month in the Jewish calendar. The seventh month of the year, which in this month, there is the Feast of Trumpets that begins the month. We looked at the, the commands from, from the book of Numbers and what's to be done on the very first day of the seventh month. And there's to be the, the, uh, the gathering, the assembly to gather. And it's beginning this Feast of Trumpets. And so they come together, we saw there in chapter 8. And then also we the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths and where the people, they come and they live in these temporary houses made out of palm leaves and, and, and temporary shelters as a reminder to them of God's faithfulness to the children of God in the wilderness wanderings. Well, they lived in temporary housing even as, as uh, God Himself tabernacled, which is a temporary housing among His, among his people. We come here... Again, to the assembly that in chapter 8, we saw as we looked in chapter 8 that they had the right regard for God's Word. We see the work of, of God's Word taking place. And remember, we talked about how the, the Word of God, it will, it will chide you. And the Word of God, it will cheer you. The joy of our Lord is our strength. 
And the Word of God it will change you. They began to, the, to participate in this feast of tabernacles and booths in ways that they had not done before. That's what the was told us here. that They celebrated in a way that hadn't been done before. And the, the widespread participation and the, and the actual physically involving themselves in the going and getting the, the palm leaves and what else they could use to make these temporary shelters. So it was a, a new day for this family, for, this, for the people of God here. Chapter 9, where we are today, okay, the feast are passed. You know, what's going to go on now? You know, we've, we've had this, this wonderful occasion of coming and the centrality of the Word of God being there, their desire to hear the Word of God, the right regard for the Word of God. They've been since then through two feasts in the month. All right. Still, we're looking at but from the time of finishing the work of the wall till the first of the seventh month began is about two weeks. Two to three weeks of festival observance. You know... Where's the break? You know, what's what's going on now with the people? So we'll come here to chapter 9. Let's pick up here. We're going to look at the first three verses. On the 24th day of this month. So it's still the seventh month. This time with the 24th day of the month. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel, they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, which was about three hours. And for another fourth, they can, or another three hours, they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. And I think as we get down to verses 5 and following the next few weeks, we'll see this is, this is the content of their confession and of their worship. You know, when we mention the word revival, a lot of different images may come to mind. Uh, for some, you mention revival. What comes to mind is a, a series of meetings. Uh, it used to be, as I grew up as a young person in a typical Southern Baptist church, we had quote, revival in the spring, quote, revival in the fall. And what it was, we would have an evangelist come in or a speaker come in for a week, maybe Sunday to Sunday, preach, and that was called revival. Um, there was, more, there was a, something of a movement beyond that as we began to recognize, you know, having a series of meetings is not necessarily a revival if we understand what revival truly is. And so kind of, the terminology has kind of changed in my home church. went to terminology of a crusade for revival. A crusade. You know, having someone come in and speak. You know, now we've got things like Bible conferences and whatever whatever name you want to put on it. But, you know, there's something of it now a veering away from the terminology of, of revival. Well, historically, if we think about the term revival and we think about what revivals have been and incidentally revivals, if you think back beyond our day, any of our days here, uh, Many times they would begin as a two-week two time, and the first week was nothing but the people of God getting together themselves before the speaker ever came. And there would be a preparation of the heart within the context of the, of the local congregation. This, we've got a man coming in, we're, we're, we're praying for, we're recognizing our, our need and our desire for revival. Well, let's take a week before he gets here every night and be together and pray together and ask God to move within us before he comes and to be prepared to, to receive the word of God. But again, historically, if we look back just in the sense of what revival, how people have identified and defined revival, it would be that these great 
great movements of the Spirit of God. And sometimes these movements would be within the context of a city or even in, in regions that would maybe encompass a large, larger area. Uh, sometimes entire countries, a very popular revival throughout, through the history is the Welsh Revival uh, that many people refer to and they've studied and, and done a lot of considering of. And in our day, in our context here, in a way, the terminology has, has largely disappeared. You know, every now and then you can pull out the paper and, you know, there's there may be one of them this week. You know, you open up and, you know, there it is. Somebody's got a little church, got a little ad, you know, revival, and they've got the picture of somebody coming to speak. And, you know, I'm not going to debate that with anybody. It's fine. Because I know what's meant by it. They know what's meant by it. You know, we're not trying to convey that you know, we believe that a great and mighty spirit of God has taken place here because this man's coming. But there is a recognizing we need. We need the Word of God presented to us. And we're going to come and, and offer ourselves and sit before uh, the man of God and hear the Word of God proclaimed to us. But I hope that although the terminology has largely disappeared, that we're not guilty of, of allowing the longing to go from us. That we still want those mighty movements of the Spirit of God in our midst. You know, we want to experience those levels of personal revival, those, those occasions, those seasons of, where the Spirit of God moves upon us even personally in a way that we, that we can truly say, I've been revived. But to, spirit in the, to experience in the context of, of a congregation, to experience it in the context of, of a denomination or in a region or whatever the case may be, I, I hope that as we get further removed from the common use of the word, that we don't lose, that we don't send away with it that longing. We recognize our need, our desire for the great members of the Spirit of God. You know, we have the modern phenomena of 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 what's termed revivals. When I was in Missouri in Sedalia, Missouri, there's a little community fifteen miles from my house, Smithton, Missouri. Some of you may have heard of the Smithton Revival. It became a one of international prominence. A little small church, a little, little Smithton is not a very big town. It's not big at all. I went through there a few times, but it was a uh, in a charismatic setting, charismatic church, and and I don't know what all went on there. Monty, the pastor I was with there, he went, I think, on on one occasion. And then we have you know presented to us such phenomena as the as the Brownsville revival in Florida, and, and then this. They call it the laughing revival, this type of thing. And, you know, part of me wants to sit back and say, all right, I want to give every benefit of the doubt, but there's some things here that concern me. You know, and is this, is this the only thing that we've got that, that is a, anything closely to resemble what we're hoping and wanting would be a great move of the Spirit of God? You know, is it genuine? You know, I've got a book in my office by Hank Canegraff who did a, a great deal of study on on the Brownsville revival and those type of things, and you know, he comes away very strongly that these things are these things are not genuine counterfeits of the Spirit of God. So we need to be discerning in our days. But how do we tell the difference? And I want to consider this morning, just in, as we look at our text here, because I mentioned to you also a couple of weeks ago as we looked at chapters eight, nine, and ten together. This is viewed by some and as a, just a time of revival of the people of God. And I want us to look at specifically here in this chapter what I think are, th- are three important aspects of where the Spirit of God is at work and when God is doing a work. And I could, my message this morning is to revival God's way. Where it's not just simply a, a stirring of emotions. It's not a, a flash in the pan. 
But there is an evidence here of the work of God taking place. What do we see here in our text here of chapter 9, verses 1 through 3? First thing we see is that the Word is central. The Word of God is central. You know, we consider it again. Back in chapter 8, the people that came, what did they want to do? They said, read to us from the law of, of Moses. They want the Word of God presented to them. There was a hunger. There was a right regard. They recognized the people of God that they had a need of, of knowing and understanding the Word of God. So they gathered even in chapter 8 of coming together. Let's, let's hear this. But that was all, if you remember, back in the first chapter, that was back at the first of the month that we see here in chapter 9. We're 24 days later. What do we see? We see the same thing. We see the this was no passing fancy for these people that God's Word remains the, fo- the focal point as they come and they gather together in verse 3 of chapter 9 while they stood in their place. What do they do? They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. There it is. When the Spirit of God is moving, what's the means that He uses? What will always be there? It's always the centrality of the Word of God. The Word of God is central. There is a correlation between true revival. Revival in the truest sense of the Word and the centrality of God's Word. The Word is God's truth. And it is God's ordained means to work among, to work through His people. It's God's ordained means to speak to the unconverted. To the unconverted, the message is this. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is included in that. It's included that the law is there. There is the awareness and the conviction of sin. But it's, it's the message of, of a right understanding, a right knowledge of God. It's a right understanding and knowledge of sin. It's a right knowledge and understanding of the person, the work of Jesus Christ. It's a, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's a right understanding that, the aspect, that there's one aspect of the gospel is the judgment of God. That's the gospel. Judgment upon men because of sin. So the Word of God must go forth. How is it that God brings the unconverted into the church, into the, into the body of Christ, not the building, into the actual body? He does it through the Word, the message of the Gospel being, being proclaimed. But the Word of God is also central in the life of the believer. What is the message to the believer? It's this. It's the gospel. The message to God's people to bring forth revival in His people is the message of the gospel. You say, oh, wait a minute, brother. I'm already saved. You know, I know all about getting saved. I know that. But what happens in our own experience? What happens when we get to points in our life where we experience coldness and deadness of heart? I mean, haven't you been there? What happens? It's because we, we, we forget the truths of the gospel. We forget the truths of, of what it means to, to be. The gospel is Christ in me and me in Christ and what that means. So it's to have that message proclaimed anew and afresh to my heart's my need of the righteousness of Christ, but also finding my refuge in Him. To know that my acceptance is before him is because of before God is because of the righteousness of Christ. And so and then we have the aspect simply given to us in the epistles it's this gospel obedience. It's gospel obedience. You know a lot of the letters that Paul wrote are just commands. 
Oh, man, that's legalism. That's not what the, we're about grace. We're not about law. Paul knows that. But there's a thing called gospel obedience. It's not that we do anything so that we might improve our relationship with God. It's not that we try to impress God. It's not even that we try to pay God back. It's just that we recognize as a child of God that there is an evidence of the work of the Spirit of God within me. And this is what it looks like. And Paul gives us the commands and we look at it and we say to Son of your Lord, this is, again, beyond me. I need the power of the gospel. I need the power of grace. But it's taking the commandments of the Scripture of the New Testament and saying, this is what God wants from me. It's not to be caught up with rules and laws in and of themselves. They are to direct us to Christ. But there is this thing called gospel obedience. And that's the message to the church. Obey the gospel. So again, they come here in verse 3. They read from, read from the book of the law. Keeping the word and the law of God before them and keeping themselves before the word of God. That's the that's the focal point. That's the that's the mark of this this work here. You know, one of the encouraging signs of our day is there's been in recent years and you know, even since back and reflect back to my college days, it's been beyond that even. But there's been a renewed emphasis and I think a new understanding of of expository preaching. You know, which is what I am committed to bringing to you. On a, on a regular basis of expository preaching. But what I mean by that is going to the Word of God, going to a section of the Word of God, and allowing that text to speak for itself. And conveying to you, as best as I understand after studying, what that text meant to those people, and hence then to make application to us. Why? Why? Why do we work so hard at that? Let me tell you, it's easier to go to a, pick a topic. I'd preach on this. You know, proof text, 10 verses throughout the Bible here and there. And there's a place for that. I don't want to dismiss that altogether because I'm going to preach a top of a sermon sometime and you're going, what's he doing? That's why I'm doing There is a place for it. <laughs> but I don't want to present a steady diet of that to you. But to understand that, that, this is, allows God's Word to speak. And I, I told you early on, I said, I, my goal here is to be, when I preach, is to be text-driven. Now, I don't want to approach a text with a preconceived notion of what I think it says or what I wish it said. You know, that's not my job. But to go to the Word of God and say, Lord, what are you saying here? Right, now I know what you're saying. What are you saying to us with this? but to allow the Word of God to be central in our preaching and our teaching so that, you know, if you're dealing with issues that, that come forth from me, I might make a faulty application. Don't misunderstand me here. But, uh, but you're dealing with issues from the Scripture, not with me personally. You know, if someone wants to argue with me, that's fine, but let's, let's argue scripturally. Now, you can take issue with a point I may make. I say, fine. Now, a pastor friend I had, he said he was dealing with some issues back in, in Ephesians this one time. And this man came and said, he said, Brother, couldn't it just be that, that Paul is saying this and this and this? And he just finally answered. He said, well, my only problem is this. That's not what he said. You know, let's just do that's what it says. And it's, it's difficult. You know, we have many times our preconceived ideas of what something is supposed to be like or what the truth is. And, you know, by George, every now and then I go to the Scripture and I say, you know, I've been thinking wrong about this. I still do that. I still am surprised by my error at times. So, yeah, I've not thought about this. this is something I've never considered before. 
But to allow the Word of God to speak to us. To allow the Word of God to be central. That's what we see here where there's revival here amidst the people of God. The Word of God is kept as central. Listen, it's important that we involves our, involve ourselves to whatever degree is possible and as much as possible in personal Bible reading. The Word of God is central in all personal lives. That we're involved in personal Bible reading, personal Bible study, personal meditation upon the Word of God. It's important to place ourselves under the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. You know, to seize the opportunities that are given to us through the Sunday school, through the worship time, through the Wednesday night studies, and whatever else we may decide to do. Through radio. Be careful. Be discerning. Through tapes. Through books. You know, to take advantage of... I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't agree with and you wouldn't agree with there. But there's a lot of good stuff out there in print. On tape. A lot of good stuff. Take advantage of that to whatever degree. You know, Wednesday night's not a good night for you. I don't think about that. Maybe Wednesday night's not a good night here. You know what? We can change that. <laughs> we can meet on Tuesday night. We can meet on Thursday night. We can meet on Sunday night instead of Wednesday night. You know, I'm flexible. We're not locked in anything here. And as a congregation, those are things we need to talk about. You know, hey, I'd like to be on Wednesday nights. It doesn't work for me. All right, what does work? And uh, we will, we will accommodate. We're into accommodation of that, of that type. But to take advantage of the opportunities that we have afforded to us, we live in a day, technology-wise, that we can we can seize much, and much that doesn't cost a dime because of the resource of radio and, and tape ministries. And now, if you have internet access. Put up your computer and go listen to somebody preach. Some good stuff out there. So the word is central in this. Second thing we see in revival of God's way is the work is continual. I remember here, verse one. Where are we? We're on the twenty-fourth day of this month, of the seventh month. Now, back over in Nehemiah chapter seven, the very last verse, seven seventy-three, going into chapter eight. We're at the first day of the month, the seventh month, with Ezra's reading of the law, and there's the people that gather together. And what's their initial response there? What's the response of the people when they hear the Word of God read to them? And we saw that in chapter 8, verses 9, 10, 11. It says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, verse 9, Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Here's the reason. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. A deep conviction here. There's, a, there's something going on here. Verse 10, They said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweets, send the portions to him who has nothing prepared, but stays holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. Now this wasn't just tears of happiness about this being a wonderful occasion we're getting together here. These are tears of grief. As they sensed their own violation of the law of God, as the, the law of God is read to them, and they're saying, Man, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. He says, you go and eat of the fat and you drink of the sweet. Send portion to him who has nothing prepared for the day. It's holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In verse 11, the Levites calmed the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. So here you have, back in chapter 7, the last part of verse 7, into chapter 8, you have this first day of the seventh month. They come together. Ezra's reading the law. Here's the initial response of grief and tears. And then, in the midst of this, they're exhorted when the Spirit of God is moving upon their hearts. People are moved to tears. 
People are convicted of, of their own unrighteousness, of their own sin, of their own violation of the law of God, and they are exhorted to be happy. Hey, this is a joyful occasion. This isn't a time for tears. Now, wait a minute, Nehemiah, Ezra, you guys, you're not, you're not getting this. The Spirit of God is moving here. You know, you need to, you need to seize the opportunity. You know, you need to draw in the net here. You got the Spirit of God moving. People are deeply moved by the conviction of sin. And you're telling them, you don't need to be grieved here. You need to be happy. You know, these guys missing something. I mean, this is Southern Baptist background coming out here. You know, this is, man, you, you, you give the invitation. You got them weeping, buddy. You, you get the piano, say, you go play, and you start playing just as I am. You say, you draw them in. You, you got them. <laughs> I didn't do that. Why? Rather, instead of doing anything of that nature, what they did, they exhorted them to to enter into the spirit of this feast of the trumpets. This feast of the trumpets, a time of celebration of God's faithfulness and the provision of the harvest. This is harvest time. And they're exhorted to observe the feast of booths and tabernacles. When we saw they actually did that back in chapter 8. Why? You know, why not seize this golden opportunity and to call for a deep repentance? You know, maybe this is just a good time. Let's just let's just not even observe the feast. There's things going on here. Let's don't forget the feast. Let's just seize the day. Let's draw the net. You know, people at such a point of brokenness here, well, you know, why, you're going to risk losing this. You know, you go through all these feasts, they're going to come back in three weeks and you're going to have nothing. Why? I think it's because of this. I think they recognize that if the, if the spirit and the remorse that these people are demonstrating, if this attitude is due to God's work, it will be fostered. It will be encouraged. It will be helped by God's appointed means. Now, where did these feasts come from? Whose idea was that? It was God's, Right? God was the one who said on the seventh month and the first day you to blow a trumpet and have an assembly. God was the one who said that you're to have the, the uh, feast of the booze and the tabernacles. It was his, his word, his law. And so what Ezra and Nehemiah recognized here was this. You don't have to abandon God's appointed means. You know, that's, if you go to God's appointed means, you're not going to lose anything. If anything, you're going to gain and so rather than just chucking the whole system, they just exhorted them, you know, enter into these feasts, but enter into the spirit of these feasts. Enter into the joy of the, of the Feast of Trumpets. Enter into the remembrance of the Feast of Tabernacle and Booze. Enter in and use these, uh, these occasions as a time of remembering the faithfulness of God, a time of remembering the keeping of God as they wander through the wilderness. Enter into that. And if you enter into that and you have your thoughts directed toward the faithfulness of God, let me tell you, that's not going to be a hindrance to revival. It's not going to be a hampering to it. It's going to be a deepening of the work of revival. Because all you're simply doing there is doing what God's called you to do anyway. So it was the feast of the trumpets that occasion their gathering back in 773, the time of celebrating God's faithfulness and harvest. It's a joyous occasion. Enjoy it.
be joyous. The Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder of God's faithfulness in Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. It was built in to these feasts. Built into these feasts if, if they are observed properly, and by that I mean they are observed with the right frame of mind, that these feasts were the opportunity to bring God's people to a deeper awareness of God's care in their own unworthiness. And they, and they did it. They, they entered into the spirit of these feasts. And so that when you come to the 24th day in, in chapter 9 here, you, by the time you get to the 24th day of this month, man, they've not forgotten. And if anything, this work has is, is gone deeper. It's deep into the heart of these people. The work of God is continual work. He uses His means. So Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, they call for the people enter in. Enter into the spirit of what God's ordained of these, of these feasts. And included in that, it's not mentioned, but also it was in that the Day of Atonement was there. You know, it really runs counter to so much of today's mentality, does not? We have something of, an, I think, an unhealthy love and affection of or love affair with the spontaneity, you know. And it goes something like this, that that which is spontaneous is of the Spirit, and that which is in any way planned is of the flesh. And so we've we've witnessed wholesale transformations in worship services. There's been the, the departure in, in many worship services from the centrality of the preaching of the Word, and it's been replaced by endless singing and praise songs. You know, there's a place for that. But it's not going to be central place. And you have here a lengthy, verses 5 and following, a lengthy expression of praise and confession before God. But let me tell you, it starts with verse 3 that they read from the book of the law of the Lord. The Word of God is central. And it's in there. It's in that context that it continues. You know, God's normal pattern, God's normal pattern is that He uses His ordained means and it's not necessary that we feel like that every generation or every few years we've got to come up with, with something new. You know, contemporary worship is not the solution for the church's apathy today. It's not. If it were, buddy, we'd be doing it. If it were, you could look around the community and you could find some churches that are doing it and you'd find there a great moving the Spirit of God. You know what you find? Pretty much what you found before. Just the music's changed. You know, God has given a means to His people. And it calls for simple obedience and faithfulness in prayer, faithfulness in the Word, faithfulness within the context of the church and ministry one to another, edifying one another. We need to learn to recognize the difference between the ruts of men's traditions and faithful obedience to God's means. Now, I agree, sometimes we need to be shaken out of our ruts. But those are ruts that we've made <laughs> of our ideas, of our traditions. You know, again, years ago, it was Sunday night. You had Sunday school on Sunday morning. Sunday night, you had training union. Yeah, I grew up with that. I mean, I was Baptist. I don't know whether the denomination did or not. Sunday night, you had training union. And I remember we went away from training union. Man, it was like I had a man who left our church. We didn't have training union anymore. And be sympathetic with the man. He was a, a, a dear man of God. I loved this man. He was, I was a young young boy. He was always there with the all the children always gave us a piece of juicy fruit chewing gum. And, you know, just a, a dear man. But he was converted in train union. And for him to, to do a train union, you know, it was like Sunday school, it was train union, you have worship on Sunday night. 
I mean, that was like, you know, we're departing from the faith here. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get in our ruts and we, we need to change things. And I hope that we will continue to have that flexibility here to recognize, you know, you know, we're not locked into Wednesday nights. You know, we're not locked into much of anything except a, a weekly gathering together. But there are also, on the other hand, there is the faithful obedience to God's means. And when we're faithful to the means of God's, to the means that God has ordained, we have the hope that He that He is free as He wills to pour out His Spirit upon us. Why is the Word of God central here? Why do we read from the Word of God? Why do we preach from the Word of God? Because that's the means that God's ordained. And where God is working, the work is continual. You know, you look at much that's in the in the light of of trying to revamp church and you know they've been doing it for a while now and what's happened? Not much of anything. You know, if we've had time to, to observe for a few years. What's happened? Is this the, the turning point? Is this the great revival we've all been longing for in our in our in our churches across the country? No, it's not. So we should be faithful to the means that we've given and know that what God does, it continues and it's fed and it's encouraged through the means that He has ordained. Finally, revival God's way, the witness is contrition. What does it look like? How do you tell whether that revival is going on? You look at what's, what's being produced in the heart of people. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites, they were right. 24 days later, two days beyond the completion of the Feast of Tabernacles, you know what you see? You see a broken people. There it is, the witness of contrition. The testimony that the Spirit of God is moving. These are people that are broken. They give to us here the visible signs, verse 1. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with what? Fasting. And sackcloth. And with dirt on them. You know, I thought about a lot of things I might wear to church today, but, you know, sackcloth and dirt wasn't among that list. How about you? I mean, is that the way to go to God? Sackcloth and dirt. What is that? Well, sometimes we can hide a lot of ugly with something pretty. Right? You know, I've been in the house where, you know, oh, we don't, we've got this hung on the wall here because, mainly because there's an ugly spot on the wall behind it. We want to hide it. Clothing can do that. You know, we can put on our, our best. We can come and we can look our best and look like, well, here we are. We've got it all together. But there comes a time when you're broken and you say, Lord, I don't want any facades. I don't want any pretense. I just want to be honest. And I come in sackcloth and ashes because I know, you know, that's what's on the inside. Nothing any prettier. Nothing any better. So all I'm doing is I'm making the outside look like the inside. I acknowledge with you, Lord. <coughs> that's what it is. And so there's the people, they come, and you know, they've got the, no covering here of nice clothing. They just know that what's on the outside expresses their understanding of what's inside and in God's view. 
I'm not encouraging you to come next week in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> but I'm encouraging us to remember that we, we walk naked and bare before Him. He sees the very core of our being. Nothing, nothing hidden from Him. It's frightening, but it's comforting. It says they separated themselves from all foreigners. You know, this, this is family matters. This is a people of the covenant. And covenant with, with God. We're going to deal with this as family. We need to be right with God. Where does, where does revival start, folks? Listen, revival is not going to be started out in an evangelistic crusade. It's going to start in the house of God. It's going to start among God's people. That's what I mean. If you look at revival, is vibed again to live again. It's those who have life, and you experience the freshness and newness of that life again. You know, where does it start? It starts within the context of God's people. In the words of Peter, the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Why is it we don't see the world being touched by by the influence of the church? Because the church has largely lost its influence. They separated themselves from foreigners. We're going to deal with this as family first. It says, Then they confessed their sins and the iniquities of the Father, verses 2 and 3. They stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You know, what's that? You know, if you read through, you find out it's not, well, you know, Lord, we're here because of our fathers, but we're not like that. That's not what they did. In fact, you see the spirit of also the verse, if you go over it and look over with quick in chapter 9, verses 33 and 35 through 35. After they've reviewed, this is all the faithfulness of God. If you haven't read through this chapter, let me encourage you to read it through this week. The faithfulness of God, the disobedience of God's people. And look at it down to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33. You are just in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law. Or paid attention to your commandments and admonitions which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness which thou didst give them, with the broad and rich land which thou didst set before them, did not serve thee or turn from their evil ways. You see what he says there? What does he say? Notice the wording here. Verse 33. You've dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. And then they go and what does he say in the next verse? Our kings and our leaders and our priests. What are they saying here? We're all in this together. We're tied into it not as a community. We're tied into this with our with our heritage, with our family. Well, you, we deserve not only what you've done, we deserve much worse than this. And so they came confessing the sins, confessing the righteousness of God and, and that they're right where they ought to be. And in fact, if not, if not much worse circumstances come with an honesty before God. They come to identify with their heritage of a sinful people. You remember the occasion and one of the woes that Jesus pronounced in Matthew chapter 23. Let's turn there real quick. Matthew 23 verse 29. Pharisees would refer to their heritage at times. And Matthew chapter 23 verse 29. Jesus says in verse 29, He says, Woe to you, scribes, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
Jesus, he wouldn't have made it in our day. He wouldn't have made it three years of public ministry, would he? For you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, this is what they say, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. See what they're saying? Yes, our fathers shed the blood of the prophets, but if it had been us, we wouldn't have done that. Then go read on further. You know what Jesus <laughs> Jesus counters that verse thirty one. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. What's he saying? He's simply saying this: a father like son. You're from the same tree. You saying these are your fathers? Yeah, you're right. You're guilty. And he goes on to say. Therefore, verse 34, 33, some more influencing people and making friends. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Verse 34, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And here's what you're going to do. Some of them, some of them you will kill, crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Boy, Jesus is guilty. The clearest evidence of your opposition to God and the people of God is that you're going to crucify God Himself. You know, we wouldn't have done it. Now, Jesus says, no, all you're doing is you're condemning yourself. Yes, they're your fathers. They're guilty, and you are too. Whereas here you have a people who say, our father's sin, it's our sin. You know, there's no, there's no point in the fingers here. It's, it's their fault. It's the other generation's fault. It's, you know, it's whoever. It's, it's us. On honesty before God. You know, there's no basis for appealing to the virtue of a previous generation. You know, sometimes the scripture will do that. They'll be, you know, for the sake of your servant David, you know, your righteous man, you had our, for the sake his sake, show mercy to us. And sometimes God did that. He would say that. For the sake of the promise that I've made to this righteous person. They're not doing that. Contrition. You know, there have been a lot of people who have, godly men who have studied revival. They've Books been written on revival. They've, they've looked at some of the great revivals in history. And one of the consistent... One of the consistent patterns is this. There's always a deep sense of sin with confession. Contrition. The witness of contrition. Which is why I don't get too excited about a laughing revival. There's something wrong there. What's wrong? I I don't know exactly, but there's something wrong. But see... uh, a deep sense of sin, of brokenness before God. You know, I, I want revival. I want it God's way. I don't want something stirred up with emotion. You know, I'm the kind of guy, hey, let's, let's seize the net. We got them. You know, let's get them. And I don't want a, a manifestation of, of the flesh, the craftiness of men. I don't want that. I want to see a great move of the Spirit of God. I want to experience a great move of the Spirit of God in my own heart. Anybody here need a revival personally? Well, the Word of God is going to be central. The work will continue. And the witness will be contrition. Let's pray.